Hello, and welcome once again to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. Joining me, once again, are two real academics from actual institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the Father Guido Sarducci Center of Excellence for the Ecumenical Study of Interfaith Religion and Society here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Hoople, that's where we are. Anyway, today we're talking about a recent article which claims that a cave located near the modern Israeli city of Beit Shemesh was used in the late Roman period for necromancy, that is, communicating with the dead. Maybe it was the 120 oil lamps that were tucked into niches and crevices, or maybe it was the deliberate rearrangement of late Roman bowls next to early Bronze Age weapons, or maybe it was the three skulls. So was this cave a portal to the underworld, or maybe a side portal? How many portals does the underworld have, anyway? Does this mean that necromancy is real, and if so, how do you know? Anyway, don't all humans want to communicate with the dead? It's like Shakespeare said, Alas, poor Yorick, you still owe me twenty bucks, and where's the hedge trimmer that I lent you? Somebody say something. Okay. Here we are again. You you may have asked why I've asked you to join me here today. Um, all right. So shall we do a lightning round? I want to sure. do one that's very straight and to the point. Oh, okay. Um, none of this psychological, you know, <laughs> roundabout method. Uh, caves, yes or no? Yes. No. Hell no. <laughs> Um, okay, so why? I'm sorry. What if what if the two of you have against caves? Uh, uh, small enclosed spaces. Um, okay. Uh, a a touch of claustrophobia. Okay. But why why In- do you like caves? Intrigue. Intrigue. <laughs> so you would actually climb into one of those caves where you have to go head first. So so there was an article in the New Yorker about not just caving, not just spelunking, but like deep spelunkers. These cats who go miles Miles. underground and and learn how to turn their body into feline skeletal structures as they, you know, slip and slide through tiny crevasses and crevices and everything else. And that was like, oh, sign me up for this. Really? Then the darkness... And the uh, and the uh, enclosure and the trillions of tons of rock bearing down on you, it yeah. doesn't bother all very, you. All very appealing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Um, I mean, they they are very fascinating caves, but but I would I, I have been in those little narrow caves a long long time ago, and that that was enough. 
And you would fit better into those things yeah, you than, would. than, than was, we would. I was just reading about Rising Star Cave, the, the Homo Naledi find. Um, and, you know, to excavate that, it was all, uh, all the excavators were slender young women because they were the only ones who could fit in. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I, re I reiterate my initial remarks. Hell no. <laughs> yeah. I, there's a there's a cave under Tel Khalif. Oh, there are many I, caves that I that I were that I once went into. Oh yeah, and I I did not enjoy the experience. I didn't have to crawl in. Sort of there, there's all sorts of there were all sorts of apocryphal stories about about cows who wandered into caves under Tel Khalif and uh, emerged in Tel Beit <laughs> some eight days later. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's a passage through through Middle Earth, it's a very a very Pinchonian uh, kind of motif. Yeah, you can fly from one part of the world to another through these caves, almost Chagall like, yeah. <laughs> though inverted. Oh, yeah. All this is making me think of caves in a new way. Um, I like them as passages, sort of liminal spaces between. Ooh, places. liminal spaces. <laughs> Who doesn't love a good liminal space? <laughs> liminal, it's the word of the day. All right, shall we get to it before we bore yeah. our listener into? Oh, but I, I have to, I have to do a a shout out to uh, the listener who, who um, left a question last on the last episode that we posted regarding the the squeaky Natufian Nefludian flutes. And um, so we appreciate we appreciate someone paying uh, the slightest bit of attention to this <laughs> to this broadcast first and foremost, and uh, second of all, there's a link that uh, I added in a comment uh, under this comment, which uh, to which is a recording of one of these little uh, uh, fluty things being played, and they're very squeaky. So thank you to the listener, and hopefully you're not you're you're still listening and not bored out of your mind yet um so a squeaky could... flute gets the fat tailed sheep large that's right <laughs> um well i thought that this was well wait we should talk about what we're talking about yeah we should talk about what we're talking about right 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 so there's um, this cave <laughs> there's this cave as as you may have inferred from our previous comments, the Teomim cave near Beit uh, near Beit Shemesh, yeah, discovered in 1873 by you know the archaeologists known before that, excavated a little bit in the 1920s and then in the 1970s, and subject to um, uh, serious archaeological work since 2009, I think. Yeah, correct. By yeah. Boaz Zisu and and others, right. and uh, I thought that this was a really fabulous and incredibly well researched article in the Harvard Theological Review. <laughs> I thought it was a, str a strange place for this particular article, but you know, necromancy being what it is, <laughs> right? Well, you know, a publication in the hand is worth two in the bush. And and that's really the the upshot of all this that uh, the the researchers think that the artifacts found in this cave uh, are evidence of necromancy. That's so. right. So the cave is uh, is big. 
It's really big. <laughs> 50 by 70 meters main chamber with shafts and pits and, and pools and with art with material dating from the Neolithic, Calcolithic, Early Bronze Age, Middle Bronze Age, Iron Age, Roman period, and Byzantine period. Right. So the, the, the most um, extensive sort of research on the cave only points to a few of those periods. It would have been nice to have sort of known a little bit more about the the spread of material. But yeah, right, a lot right. of different time periods because who doesn't love a good cave? Everybody loves caves. That's sort of true. <laughs> I like the idea of caves. Yeah. They're very cool. That's true. Um, they're they're very filled with dust and guano and things that are bad for my respiratory system. But that That's we're not talking about me. <laughs> we're talking about we're talking about this this cave. And why is it interesting? It's very interesting because <laughs> it's I mean, you always find stuff in caves from different periods. Right. But it's how the stuff is weirdly distributed and apportioned that makes this cave i think so interesting and um for me the highlight was the um what was it the 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 early bronze age um bronze weapons and the late roman lamps which are tucked on a niche high 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 above the the floor level so people are going into these caves and depositing all sorts of stuff and well, moving. Not, all the, not all sorts of stuff. It is a pretty. Well, okay. uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pardon my enthusiasm. Pardon my enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a lot of lamps from the late Roman and early Byzantine period. And then what is it like three um, intermediate bronze, middle bronze. Right. Weapons, bronze weapons. And right. then an EB1 juglet and, or an MB bowl. So it's a limited range, which is and three skulls and the skulls and right. skulls, right? And that's um, kind of interesting that it's a. I found it interesting that it was such a limited range, as if it was all pretty, you know, go in, <laughs> tuck your lamp away, and uh, you know, do your business and get out of there. Well, right. So, so one thing we should say is there's some long, long shafts and deep, deep niches. Uh, and that's where some of these artifacts were found. So it's not like they're lying around. I mean, I think some artifacts are lying around the main chamber, but the ones that we're talking about were tucked away in these hard to reach places. And right. um, that's kind of what makes this interesting. Right. In crevasses and niches. And and it, the lamps were not used specifically for, it appears, for illumination as as such, but they're sort of ritually placed. A and different kind of illumination. <laughs> a deeper form of illumination. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that was actually cool. And there's the, and the piece has a very long discussion about different kinds of divination. And I had no idea that there's oil lamp divination in the in the classical world, where yeah. where you would divine um, from the the shape of the flames, and that the flame was a medium for the for the deity or the spirit to communicate and exit and all this kind of, I don't want, I don't want to be, you know, prejudicial, but it's weird <laughs> from, <laughs> yeah. from my point of view. 
Right. Right. No, it, it was interesting. I sort of liked the idea of of the light from the lamps being the the, the important thing about the divination, but um, but I'm I'm actually torn about. And obviously, I have not been in that cave, and never will be in that cave. But um, <laughs> you could I, fit I, much more I easily probably, than, than I, we could. Yeah, I probably could fit. <laughs> but uh, but I think um, I'm I'm a little bit torn about whether you know, you're putting lamps in niches, who says they're not for light? Um, but, but okay. So I kind of need to think this through a little bit more. Um, but the thing that intrigued me the most was that a, a middle bronze two ball, a bowl was found in C2 um, covering um, these late Roman oil lamps and another one, a skull was covering oil lamps. Like it was specifically placed on top of some of these lamps. So that, I, again, I haven't thought this through, but I'd like to think that piece through, so. Right, there's a concept, there's a pattern. Yeah. The, they didn't just toss aside all the older stuff uh, that was in this cave, like you, like typically people did in burial caves. You just shove all that stuff aside. Right. But right. you kind of rearranged it for your own divinatory purposes or <laughs> celebratory purposes. Right. I mean, maybe they're just having a party down there. Maybe it's like a big disco. <laughs> maybe they're putting out the lamps by putting the, the bulls and the skulls over them to extinguish the oxygen. Maybe that's all that's going on. That could well, be. A, a couple of things that I was thinking of is one, there's also some um, Bar Kokhba uh, coin hoards. Yeah. So they're being deposited earlier than the lamps. Right. So it seems like there's a there's a period of time in which this portal to the <laughs> to the netherworld was closed. <laughs> and they were just living in these caves and stashing coin hoards and trying to remain, you know, <clears throat> trying to remain uh, undercover as yeah. the as the Romans, you know, purged the land. Right, uh, but then later, it it takes on a new uh, level of importance, and it becomes this, you know, possible portal to the netherworld conduit. Um, but then the the thing that made me most curious was why only three crania. Yeah. <laughs> How many would you like to have seen? Well, I don't know. I feel like. I feel like it's a very modest portal. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. You know. I feel like this isn't the main portal. Like there might <laughs> a main portal. It's a side portal. It's the back door. This was like a. This was like some kind of you know side right a back door side door. Yeah. Hundred and twenty lamps, three crania, a couple of antiquities from the middle and early Bronze Age, and you know maybe only a few families knew about it. I don't know. Right. I, I'm kind of curious about the kind of limited range of well, not a lot of use. Let, let me let me ask: Are you two convinced that um, th this absolutely? Theory... <laughs> <laughs> what were you, you going to say? I'm sorry. <laughs> are you two convinced that this really is a case of, of archaeological evidence for necromancy? Because um, I'm on the fence about it. <laughs> what? <laughs> well. I... I mean, necromancy has put her into a lather. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's very interesting, all of the textual references to necromancy and the cross, the cross-cultural study of necromancy yes. and all of that. But unless yes. you have a text saying, you know, here lie the, 
you know, don't cross the streams and here lies the gates of hell. I, right. I don't think, I think it's all speculative. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think uh, it's a very cool idea, but um, I, I just, I don't know. I'm not. Well, what's your What's your objection? Is it on the basis of the you know modest numbers of of artifacts, especially skulls, or is it conceptually? I have a couple of objections. If you want to know, <laughs> so just yeah. sit down and be patient. Right. <laughs> we'll no, explain no. it um, to you now. Yeah. So, mind. I, I have a couple of questions that lead to objections. So, so I need to know whether we should be thinking of the intermediate bronze and the middle bronze age. Um, bowls that are part of this as something that were previously left in the cave and then these late Romans came along and said, oh, let's use these in our ceremonies? Or was it the fact that they're old, that they're heirlooms, that they're found artifacts, whatever, you know, however they got a hold of them, hey, it's important to use old stuff to call up ancestors. Okay, but what's the difference, really? The difference is, is this intentional? It all comes to, as always, intentionality with me. Is this intentional or is this, hey, it's in the cave, let's use it somehow, um, as opposed to let's- well, why does it. that make a difference? It uh -oh. does. It just okay, does. It just does. <laughs> um, I, I think I could, given enough time, which we don't have right now, I could come up with reasonable reasons, reasonable reasons for, for each theory. Um, but I'd like to know, because I do think it makes a difference. Um, and I also want to know, there was a suggestion um, that the weaponry was kind of part of all this, but the proof text, if I can use that term, um, yeah, was, <laughs> was um, over the audience. <laughs> something about um, Odysseus using a weapon to skin sheep offerings in a necromancy context. But in other words, the point of um that Odysseus text is the offerings, not the weapons. So are the weapons left there incidentally, but the weapons are intermediate Bronze Age, I think, where they duck-billed axes. Um, and a duck-billed axe and two socketed spearheads. Right, right. So I, I mean, so that particular proof text doesn't do it for me because that proof text is about the, the, the sheep being killed, which happens to be killed by weapons, as opposed to the weapons themselves, which seem to be some sort of heirloom or if not an heirloom passed down since the intermediate bronze age, which I highly doubt, at least, um, you know, we found it, we know it's old, so therefore it's important. So we're going to put it in this ceremony. Well, those are good questions and, and not unimportant ones because it's a, it, it's a little, the whole premise of, of late Roman, early Byzantine folks conjuring, <laughs> conjuring up, portals to the other world and sprinkling in a few Bronze Age objects, that's kind of far out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that I think that your um, your objections or your <laughs> qualifications are um, maybe uh, missing the point in the sense that the, here's a cave with um, a bunch of stuff and three skulls in it. It's not a burial cave. There's no evidence of any yeah. formal formal burials. Right. There's a, a it's been the cave was used uh, periodically over an immense period of time for purposes unknown. But in this particular period, the late Roman period, you have a kind of weird and unique um, concatenation. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> We're hitting all the all of our vocabulary lists today <laughs> of, of of objects 
there's a skull over a pot. There's a pot over a skull. There's an axe with a skull. Um, and there's a 120 lamps. Like, okay, go. Let's let's not even talk about what the periods are per se. But how do you explain this this unique um, combination of of artifacts? And I thought the I thought the authors did a very nice job in looking at all of this classical archaeological textual data and some of the European data, which all of which shows that lamps are super important in in, <laughs> in caves. Hold um, on. I don't think you need to qualify that by saying in caves. Well, no, lamps are super important, lamps are but, super important. But there are caches of lamps, hundreds, thousands of in in particular contexts, that are clearly you know dem, d, are, that are demonstrably cultic, ritual, underworld related. Okay, there's, but you know what? And there's you know detached what? skulls all over the classical world and and the European contemporary European world which are used in necromancy, divination, and classical texts out the wazoo talking about, you talk to the, tell it to the skull. Right. Okay. Um, so, so let me then respond to that by saying, you have asserted many times before, Alex, that it, that it's, everything's religion. I, re I retract that. <laughs> because this is, that this is religion. <laughs> so this is just, they're, everyone's just doing this all the time. Well, everybody's not everybody is is um, detaching mm -hmm. skulls in in uh, let's say domestic contexts, unless we're talking about the Neolithic, where, as as I have demonstrated to my <laughs> satisfaction, <laughs> headhunting was um, was okay. prevalent and necromancy talking to the skulls uh in the context of you know reviving spirits or consulting with spirits or you know whatever with spirits um was a dominant part or a, a leading part of of um the belief system whatever but it wasn't a leading part because it's all if you're saying it's all religion then it's just the normal part yeah like that's normal yeah, but it's not a normal part, let's say, in the late Bronze Age, so far as we can tell. What, whatever's going on in the Neolithic uh, with skulls. <laughs> whatever's going on here. <laughs> has absolutely zero to do with this. We're talking about a few partial skulls here. And, you know, there we have a whole head cult, a whole skull cult with the plastering and, and yeah, marching that's... around masks and all sorts of stuff. And here, this is an entirely different use. You're not, you're not resurrecting your ancestors here. That's what I think they're doing in the Neolithic. They're, they're, head hunt, they're head hunting. All right. Yeah, I think we had this argument. In yeah, we did we in, in, in episode 61B. <laughs> we can't right. have this argument A again and B in an episode dedicated to the late Roman early Byzantine period. Okay, Correct. but let's Correct. talk about let's talk about the uh, the classical world and in uh, Iron Age Europe. Um, <laughs> well, there's they, there's certainly a lot of, you know, there's certainly a lot of there's there's some of that going on. Can we just say Roman period Europe? Because let's not confuse our our terms, um, unless you're trying to do that. 
No, they call it. It's I know, their, but they, it's their Iron Age. It, I know it's their Iron Age, but it's our Roman period. So, <laughs> ours, theirs. <laughs> well, this is something that definitely can confuse um, people. Not us, of course. Well, that's uh, sort of the point. Um, <laughs> um, but but yes, so so there's apparently a lot of evidence for necromancy right. in Roman Britain, um, or in the Roman world, because there's a lot the of examples from all over all over the Roman Empire. Right. So you're willing to accept that that might be necromancy there in in Roman Britain or in yeah. or in you know France or wherever. Having read zero of the evidence, sure. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, um, and I'm not. I'm not unwilling to accept this. I just don't know if I feel like there are too many questions. Well, and... so what's your what's your alternative? Well, I don't have an alternative. You're just doubting, doubting Thomas Thomasina. Maybe what do you think? Do you think that this is necromancy? Because right. Alex really thinks so. Yeah, I'm I'm actually surprised, but I just have a feeling that it's it has something to do with the summer heat and <laughs> being indoors and you know sort of needing to nourish his his mind that he's adopting this very pro necromancy. <laughs> well, I, I'm not pro necromancy in most situations. I just want to clarify that to the to the listener and you know any federal agents who might be tuning in um no i th i just think that it's a kind of elegant um explanation here and that the authors of this article um did a nice job in in making this argument yes and i agree i think that the that the coverage of all of the literary aspects and especially you know sort of the stuff that appears in you know talmudic literature and things like that you know, make a really interesting case for the fact that, you know, necromancy continued to exist well into the late antique period, um, was clinging on to the edges of, you know, <laughs> proper society, and uh, that there were all sorts of cautionary tales that were being, um, you know, right. that are found in the literature, and that there is this linkage between caves and skulls and necromancy and 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 so why not i guess okay okay that's interesting um so so i feel like we need to just give a little bit more context that the article gives us which is uh the romans had actually outlawed necromancy but of course it continued anyway um and that you already <clears throat> mentioned the, the bar Kokhba period and that this is right afterwards and right the jews were were out they they were Right. And these were pagans. These were pagans and probably pagans who were brought in from various parts of the Roman Empire. Are, coming are we allowed to, isn't there new terms for pagan? Wiccan? No, no. I don't, think, I don't think we can use pagan anymore. Okay. Um, Non-Christians um, in the Roman yeah. context. Um, Non-Jews. Um, animus? Not animists. No. I don't know. I, I This, have, I, this I, happened to me before and I... I didn't know the term, but I'm okay, just saying. Okay, so we got to look that up. Yeah, yeah. well, I'll we'll have to call the lawyer. I've never <laughs> been to the term pagan, but yeah. Um, so, a, and let's also not forget that my last little thing here is that um, we got plenty of evidence for necromancy from the Hebrew Bible. Um, the of course, best, right. The best example is um, Saul help, being helped by the witch of Endor 
who maybe we should refer to as Andorra, <laughs> um, at, to, to call up the ghost of, of Samuel. Um, and that's that's a no-no. You're not supposed to do that. And there are plenty of other places that you're that we hear that necromancy is not legal, meaning that it was being done all the time. Um, so so it's not unknown in this part of the world in general, um, which again leaves me with questions that okay, this is a really interesting argument for this diverse, diffuse bunch of little things in this cave, but. Um, but I don't know. I, I think what I want is that is that inscription saying necromancy was practiced here. <laughs> the, the necromancer is in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. would be nice. Yeah. Right. Not a, not an unreasonable demand. <laughs> I didn't think it was unreasonable. <laughs> it might be a little bit beyond our capability. Well, but th that's but that's what I like about this is that it doesn't come labeled. You have to use your imagination. You have to put together put together uh, outside outside evidence and parallels and correlations in order to make a an argument, and then you then you let it fly. And uh, it, it's an illustration of of uh, of the archaeological method and all of its inherent ambiguities. Okay, where, where we just airing dirty laundry in uh in public again well <laughs> i didn't understand that last part but <laughs> i like the I first think, part <laughs> yeah, yeah. i i think we're 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 showing how um good scholarship can can be good scholarship and interpreted more than one way i don't think that's dirty laundry i think that's the scientific method no, no, there has to be either a, a single scientific uh, explanation or a cover-up <laughs> of the real deeper explanation that um, will rock the foundations of uh, of the modern world if it comes out. Hmm. Okay. Well, wouldn't it be nice if necromancy was real and you could actually communicate with spirits? Well, I think a lot, of people, a lot of people do think it's real and communicate with spirits. And I say a lot. I really have no idea how many. <laughs> well, it was a big. It was a big part of the early episodes of the Kaminsky method. After his, uh, oh, I don't want to give any spoilers, but <laughs> um, yeah, you know, communicating with one character who had passed away. Although, right. although that character just tends to kind of appear. There's no ritual. No skulls were used in the Kaminsky method. <laughs> I hasten to point out. <laughs> Those skulls were hurt in the. <laughs> in the filming of this well but maybe that actually maybe the, the connection is that there's a deep human mm. need or desire um and and i mean really deep um that's fundamental to the to the mentality of the species to communicate with with the dead yeah uh and we're just a little less hands-on about it, let's say, than you know, skull-based necromancers. Right. Well, I was very hands-on. I went to four shows. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> um, no one has ever doubted your 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 dedication to communicating with 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 the dead in in, in any of its uh, incarnations. In any of the incarnations, yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. I mean. There is a both fear and attraction to talking to a skull. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it shows up throughout history from 
you know, from all the literature cited, all these Talmudic references to Shakespeare to... I was just going to say, Yorick. Yep. Alas. So, oh, Yorick, right. It's always a it's always a very compelling thing, and and it's pretty obvious why. I mean, you know, we're we're sort of looking at ourselves and thinking beyond the temporal and corporeal. Right, right, right. That's that's very true, and that's sort of that is the link, and dare I say, the only link between like Neolithic skull cults and Calcolithic secondary burial, and you know, pushing pushing aside and family burials in the Bronze Age and so on. Just the 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 communicating with the dead, the not being afraid of the physicality of the dead, and the idea of of dead ancestors. Well, cult of the dead, basically. Right. That's what Which, I was trying to say. Cult of the right. dead in all its various forms. So riddle me this: Is this cave at Beit Shemesh uh, representative of a whole class uh. of these kinds of? portals you know this is my old this is the shtick that i always do is this one of many just one that we happen to have found or is this really unique and distinctive i'm gonna go with one of many so that there are many portals Everybody that we just don't see if this is a necromancy <laughs> thing then right. it can't be the only one in the region well, well if it was the only one then there would have been more material culture there more lamps more yeah. skulls then we would know for sure Maybe. Right. <laughs> Maybe there would have been a label. And what about people who lived in areas in which there aren't a lot of natural caves? Are they well, making pilgrimages? And again, if they're making pilgrimages, then I would think that there would be a few examples with lots and lots and lots of lamps and skulls. Right. And some of the parallels that, that the authors of the piece mentioned, uh, at least from Greece, I think, have immense numbers. Right. Like, like thousands and thousands of lamps suggestive of l much longer and more intense periods of, uh, of these kinds of practices. Right. And at, at Banyas, at Caesarea Philippi. All right. Right. Um, Andrea's, uh, they, they mentioned Andrea's uh, article. Stuff. Right. Right. And, and we know, uh, well, not we, the three of us, but pe people who know things. <laughs> people who actually know things. <laughs> right. I feel we should make that qualification pretty much every episode. Every episode, yeah. Um, you know that there that there are these shrine-like places and actual temples where uh, religious rituals and including communications and uh, with the dead and and spirits or gods um, went on, but these these little back doors to the underworld are are very uh, are very interesting. And Who are you going to call? <laughs> exactly. Well, that's another very good modern example, isn't it? Um, well, well, it's it's an, it's a modern example. It's a modern example. <laughs> but the fact, well, no, the fact that one. the fact that there are so many modern examples that we can call on in big popular culture, you know, yeah. from Ghostbusters to the Grateful Dead, um, you know, shows the the longevity of the um, of the genre. Yeah. Right. It's a basic. It's a basic human need um, to to somehow communicate. But my question is always, okay, so you 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 did this, um, but you have to generate your own answers <laughs> from the dead, um, ah, because well, they're that's... not really they're not really that communicative, or you need a specialist 
to interpret the shape of the flame in the lamp that uh and you know it's when does this become just religious jiggery pokery right well that's actually a really interesting question because let's face it if it were the three of us and we knew that or we believed that we could do divination through lighting a a lamp we just do it ourselves we wouldn't want some specialist getting in our getting in our mojo we'd want to just say no this is what i think so so the enlightenment figures in here because pre-enlightenment everybody you know was under the yoke of the specialist okay post enlightenment we all want to we all want to write our own our own narratives Right. But what if what if you don't know how to communicate with your dad? And because it, it's it's a skill, it's a profession, right? Well, um, up, until, up until up until right. But, but become, still, it became professionalized. It was normative for quite a while, but under the under the yoke of the specialist. I need to ask a few questions, which this is brought up. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how it brought these questions up, but um but you you have choices in your in your divination. You can use a liver to right. predict the future. What makes you want to ask your dead versus asking a liver? That's one. And then two, are you communicating with your own dead? Is it your own direct ancestors or is it, I don't know, somebody else's? And what makes your dead more right than somebody else's? But like all religious practice, there was probably, you know, folk ground up and, you know, institutional top down. Okay, right. Right. Good point. Good point. Right. Which I mean, we find lots of correlates in the archaeological record for that, you know, for that general kind of yeah. sense. Of so this is this is bottom up. Well, I don't know. That's yeah. That's hard. That's hard to say. I I, I don't were, know. I think if it were bottom up, there'd be many more examples, and it would be a little bit more. There would be a wider range of lamps, and you know, pieces of skulls, and it seems a little organized. Really, from this little cave or big cave? Yeah, because it's such a small amount of material. See, I'm reading it completely the opposite. If it were if it were um, top down, there'd be a whole lot more stuff. There'd be a whole ah, lot. Of okay. Um, All right. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yep. That's certainly feasible. So basically what we're concluding with is we just don't know. Just don't know. Yeah. Ever been to a seance? No, that would be cool to do though. Ever been to a seance? Have you ever used a Ouija board? Yes. Sure. Yeah. Um, do you believe the Ouija board? <laughs> not not fully <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think the ACER meetings really need to return to New Orleans because <laughs> the New Orleans meetings were always always a lot of stuff going on there that's true um, you know <laughs> senior scholars in topless bars and <laughs> whoa 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 <laughs> Um, I, I think he's thinking about other other aspects of New Orleans. <laughs> I was thinking about having my palm red, but okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry I never bought that leather, that alligator belt. Oh, hmm. that's true. Have you had your palm red though? Me, yes. You have. Okay. Sure. Did it come true? Uh I can't really. I don't know. Okay. So I don't know. I've started to read my horoscope every day. Really. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I remember growing up, I would spend summers on the Jersey Shore and we would go to Asbury to the amusement area. And there was Madame Marie <laughs> from right out, of, right out of the Springsteen song, right out of the Springsteen song. And I'm like, oh, you know, 50 years later, 70 years later, I should have <laughs> taken advantage. But <laughs> all right, Mom, can I have five bucks to go see Madame Marie and never read my fortune? <laughs> All right, final final thoughts. Necromancy is it real? <laughs> <laughs> for it or against? No. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm all for it. Okay, I'm, I'm for it also. I don't know if this is evidence of it, but I'm for it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'm. I'm all for it, and I think we should, you know, consider it. But let's hang on to our skulls. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this episode makes me want to speak to the ghost of Gavin McLeod. That's right, Murray Slaughter of the Mary Tyler Moore Show, although you probably know him best as Captain Merrill Steubing of the Pacific Princess, a.k.a. the Love Boat. And so, we'd like to thank, as always, Erez Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic, for our theme music. Look for his performances in the Chicago area and follow him on Instagram at at 54BPM. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Dumont Television Network, a division of Yo-Yo Dine Propulsion Systems. Be sure to watch The Hazel Scott Show, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays from 7.45 to 8. To get in touch, leave us a comment. Hit the little heart-shaped button. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at at this ancient. It's one word, this ancient. And on Facebook. Contact us via email at this week in the ancient Near East, it's all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.